Dr. Dave is going to be sharing with us this morning. So even if you're at home, make some noise for Dr. Dave. And if you're here today, please make some noise for Dr. Dave Martinke. Wow, thank you, Scott. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, as we pause, I think it's fair to say that nobody woke up this morning saying, gee, I'm looking forward to hear from Dr. Dave today. And yet, Lord, I think if we're honest, there are many of us, as we were getting ready this morning to come to church, we were thinking, we need to hear from you. We desperately need to hear what you would say and how you would change our hearts that we would be more like Jesus. For we commit this time to you, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, as is already shared, um, my profession is that of a family doctor. As a family doctor, I think it's fair to say that I'm probably more comfortable treating patients in the office or even running a code at the hospital than I am in speaking before you this morning. So I know you will extend me your grace as I share a little bit out of my comfort zone. Well, with that being said, uh, when Scott shared with me about the series of Breathe, I know my mind gets a little geeky sometimes, but as he was sharing about Breathe, I was reminded of the Greek word for breathe or breath. The Greek word for breathe or breath is pneuma. We would spell it in English, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma. And for those that might have a medical background, you know that that's the same root as pneumonia, which is an infection of the lungs. Or maybe pneumonitis, which is an inflammation of the lungs. Or maybe even pneumothorax, which is a collapse of the lungs. And so that word pneuma means to breathe. And you know, there are times when we're in stressors where we just need to take a deep breath and breathe. We've maybe had people tell us that, or we've told other people, I know you're anxious, but just, just take a deep breath and breathe. But you know what's interesting is that same Greek word pneuma is the same Greek root that's used for spirit. So when we walk through times of stress, not only do we need to take a deep breath, but the Greeks knew that we also need to take in God's spirit and allow his spirit to enter in and help us in the situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. Well, let me this morning start off with a story, a real story which took place. It was 25 years ago, and Daryl and I and our family were attending a different church. And while we were at that church, there was a visitor that came. And this visitor's name was John Babalola. Now, John Babalola was from Nigeria. John traveled from Nigeria to Buffalo to complete a surgery residency at the University of Buffalo. And so because I was a family doctor at Kenmore Mercy, and John was a surgery resident at the University of Buffalo, we became friends. We started sharing our life together. We would pray together, we would visit together, and we would enjoy one another's company. Now what I didn't tell you is that John had a wife, Elizabeth. And John's wife, Elizabeth, and their four-year-old son, Wally, were still living in Nigeria. So John was alone in a foreign country, completing his residency apart from his wife and son. And then it happened. One day, John received a letter from Elizabeth. 
telling John that she had found a mass in her neck. John was quite concerned, and so he had Elizabeth flown from Nigeria with her son Wally to Buffalo, and she took, he took Elizabeth to some of the finest physicians at the University of Buffalo. And what they discovered is that Elizabeth had swollen lymph nodes in her neck from a cancer. It was a quite serious form of cancer. One would even say a life-threatening form of cancer. Now, I don't know about you, but I would say that for a 34-year-old woman to travel to a foreign country, living among people who don't even speak her language, with the only adult who she knows, her husband being a surgery resident, working countless hours at the University of Buffalo, I would say that that situation would pretty much define a trial. Would you agree with me on that? Now, you might say to me this morning, yeah, but Dave, I'm not facing a life-threatening situation like Elizabeth. No, but many of us this morning, whether you're with us in the auditorium or whether you're with us online, you are facing a trial, a difficulty, a struggle. And there are times where when we go through trials, we feel helpless or hopeless or alone. Well, let's turn to God's word. And let's see what God's word would teach us this morning as we consider the concept of facing trials. Facing trials. Well, we're going to turn to James, the book of James. It's in the New Testament. We're going to look at chapter 1, the start of the book of James. And I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 4, which is taken from the New International Version and reads as follows. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. James says, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so my first point in this message of facing trials is trials will come to us all. Trials will come to us all. If you're watching online, I'd like you to put that in the little chat. Trials will come to us all. And then add an emoji that you're feeling as I say that. Kind of a discouraging point for the very first message that I would preach before you and the very first point that I would make. And yet it's true. Trials will come to us all. You see, it's been said that there are three kinds of people in life. Those of us in a trial. Those of us coming out of a trial. Or those of us who will be going into a trial. Why? Because trials are common to us all. Trials are just part of life. Now as I talk about trials, I think it's important to differentiate trials from something else. There are times in life where I, and if you're honest with yourself, you, have made bad decisions that have led to bad consequences. I'm not talking about that with a trial. Let me, let me give you an example. About six weeks ago, I, made a, I met a very fine young man, Zach. We were working together at the Goodness Project, Zach. It was about six or eight weeks ago, and we were sorting medications. And I remember you told me a little bit about your life. See, Zach goes to Damon College, and he's in a course of studies in accounting. It's a tough course of study. But Zach, like me when I was younger, 
much younger, I played volleyball. And Zach's a great volleyball player. Well, let's say next Sunday, Zach comes up to me and he says, Dave, Dave. Well, Zach, Zach, what's the matter? He said, oh, oh, Dave, I'm, I'm going through a trial, man. I'm going through a trial. I said, oh, bro, tell me about your trial. What trial are you going through? I said, Dave, you know, I go to Dave accounting. Yeah, I know that. And you know, I'm taking this tough course in accounting. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. And you know what? I failed the test. I said, Zach, you failed the test? Why'd you fail the test? He said, well, I kind of blew off the studying. See, I didn't want to study because, you know, I really love volleyball. So I played volleyball the whole week or two before the exam. And, you know, I didn't study at all. And I took the exam and I failed. Would you pray for me, Dave? I'm going to say, Zach, I'm going to pray for you. But I wouldn't define your situation as a trial. What I would say is that you made a bad decision. You decided not to study and you failed the test. Bad decision, bad consequence. Not a trial. Or let's say it was Gary Osbach. Gary and I served at Cornerstone together at, uh, for, for quite a few years. Those that don't know, Gary is, is Scott's father-in-law. And Gary and I somehow developed this reputation of having a, a heavy foot on the accelerator. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that's the reputation that we got. So let's say next Sunday, Gary comes to me and says, Dave, Dave, I'm going through a trial. So Gary, let me pray for you. What trial are you going through? He said, well, I was driving 75 in a 55 mile an hour zone. And you know what? That policeman had the gall to pull me over. And not only did he pull me over, but he gave me a ticket. Not only did he get a ticket, I got a $100 fine because of that ticket. And I said, well, Gary, I'm going to pray for you. But you know something? I wouldn't call that a trial. I call that a bad decision with a bad consequence. See, trials are difficult, different. Trials occur often at no fault of our own, simply because of being human. See, Scott's talked to us about a recent series about being human. A lot of good points that we just all share in common because we're all part of the human race. And one of the things that we share in common is that trials are common to us all. And we will all go through trials often at no fault of our own. Now there's one other kind of trial that I like to call out that we as Christians experience. And that's the trial when we express our Christian faith or we live out a Christian faith in a society that is antithetical to Christ. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. We are Christians living out our faith in a society that is antithetical to the cause of Christ. But nonetheless, what do we do? We still live out our faith. And sometimes that will cause trials. And so, what can we learn as we consider trials? Well, trials are common to us all. As a family doctor, I've walked through trials with many patients. And I've learned a lot about people who go through trials. For example, one day, I cared for this couple and three children, twin boys and a daughter. And the parents. Family doctor, I cared for the whole family. And then one day the couple came in to see me. Their 14-year-old son didn't feel like he wanted to live any longer. And he hung himself in their home and he was found by their young daughter. For that family, that is a trial. It's a difficulty. We sat in that exam room and we held hands. And we cried and we prayed because trials are common to us all.
often at no fault of our own. And what I've learned as a physician is that often when patients go through a trial, they'll say something like this to me. Dr. Dave, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? And the answer is, usually, you did nothing to deserve it. Because although bad, bad decisions lead to bad consequences, trials are often common to us who are human. And they often occur at no fault of our own. And therefore, if we are to live this life, we need to do so. Understanding that trials will come. And we can embrace the process of going through trials. Why? Because it's common to us all. The Bible is full of men and women who have gone through trials. We can think of, uh, Scott shared previously about Paul, who was shipwrecked, stoned, and beaten. How about Peter, who ended up in jail on multiple occasions? How about, how about Stephen, who was stoned to death, the first Christian martyr? John the Baptist that was beheaded, John who was, who was uh, exiled to the island of Patmos, Jeremiah that was thrown in a cistern. What about Naomi, who traveled to a foreign land because of drought in Israel? She traveled there with her husband and two adult sons. The three of them died and Naomi left alone with her daughter-in-law Ruth, traveling back to Israel. And, and Ruth, without a family but her mother-in-law in a foreign land. We can remember David, who was hunted by Saul. We can remember Elijah, who was hunted by Jezebel. We can remember Mary Magdalene, who was exploited and abused at the hands of men. Or even Joseph, who was thrown in prison for a crime that he never committed. See, trials are common to us all. And, try, and just being a Christian or following God does not insulate you from a trial. Because trials are common to us all. It's just a fact of life. Now how's that for the very first point, the very first message that I would share with you this morning? How encouraging have I been so far? Trials are common to us all. Yay! Let's not stop there. Let's move on to my second point. And that is, now first being trials will come to us all. Second, trials mature our faith. Once again, if you're watching online, I want you to type in the little chat. Trials mature our faith. And then give me an emoji that would be associated with what you're feeling with that concept of trials maturing our faith. You see, James speaks of that in the third and fourth verse where he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When trials come, our faith is tested. When our faith is tested, perseverance is produced. When perseverance is produced, spiritual maturity is developed. See, I once thought that becoming spiritual mature occurred by growing old in Christ. Now that I've lived a few decades in Christ, I've learned that spiritual maturity does not come by growing old in Christ. So I'm sure many of us, you might know many, who've grown old in Christ and yet are not very spiritually mature. It's true. 
but it's very sad. See why? Because developing spiritual maturity isn't just growing old in Christ. Developing spiritual maturity is when we go through trials and difficulties. And we are tested and our faith is examined. And we wrestle with, what do I believe? And just as importantly, what do I not believe? And then as we persevere in that wrestling, ah, then spiritual maturity is developed. It's a process which is precipitated or caused by trials. I experienced this first in my life by watching my father. My dad was 62 years of age, just one year older than I am today. He was 62 years of age, and at 62 years of age, I remember when dad was given the diagnosis of cancer. It was colon cancer, and it was he had undergone a very serious surgery, very disabling surgery. Dad went through surgery very stoically. And then two years later, the cancer came back in his liver. Now, as a physician, I knew when the cancer returns in the liver, it is not a very good sign, nor a good prognosis. And so we talked. Dad went through more surgery, and remarkably, to God's glory, Dad lived another 25 years. But here's my point. My point today is that I saw a spiritual growth and maturity occur in my father's life. It was almost as if the cancer caused him to wrestle with what did he believe and what did he not believe. And through that wrestling, he came to a deeper understanding of God, a deeper commitment to God, which eventually led to him coming to me one day where he said, Dave, when we're up to the family cottage this summer and on the lake, would you please baptize me? I'd like to have a public expression of my faith because of my newfound walk with Christ. Trials lead to testing, perseverance to spiritual maturity. A good test will not only determine what you know, but a good test will also determine what you don't know. Let me explain that to you. Let's think about the Israelites when they were in Egypt. The Israelites were in Egypt for hundreds of years. God sent Moses as the deliverer to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and to move them to the promised land. En route from Egypt to the promised land, as they were going en route, something happened. The Israelites sinned. That sin caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years. I don't know about you, but if I had to wander in the desert for 40 years, I would probably consider that a trial. And so if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, I'm going to read for you what Moses said to the Israelites at this point in their history. They had just come out of Egypt, and they had just finished wandering for 40 years in a desert. And this is what Moses says. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years? To humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Why do trials come? It can come from production of humility, 
for testing and to know what's in your heart. Now just put it on pause for a second. Just, just pause. I want you to just, just, just contemplate and ruminate just a few concepts with me. You're out on a summer evening. It's a beautiful evening. Night falls. It's dark. You're in the woods. There's no clouds. And you look up in the sky and you see beautiful stars, maybe even some planets and constellations vastly spread out through the heavens. Maybe if it's wintertime, you would see the aurora borealis or or, or if you had a telescope, you would appreciate the Milky Way. Galaxies upon galaxies, planets upon planets, universe beyond our comprehension. All created by a powerful God. Or let's say you took a microscope and you looked within the cells of your body. What would you see? You'd see the cytoplasm and the nuclei and the nucleoli, the ribosomes, the, the, the mitochondria that make up the cell, the very nucleic acids that make up the DNA of your body. That God who is vast, creating the heavens and the universe, is the God who is personal, who knows every cell of your body and every aspect of your DNA. He knows it all. Now that loving God, do you think he doesn't know what's in your heart? Do you think he tests you to find out what's in your heart? Because he just doesn't know. No. You see, God tests you to learn for that you can learn what's in your heart. Because when you're tested, you examine your heart. And you know what happens when you examine your heart? You see things that you wish you weren't there. And you don't see things that you wish were there. If you've ever been examined by the Spirit of God, you know what I'm talking about. There's that which is in your heart that you wish wasn't there, and there's that that you wish was there that wasn't. See, that's what happens when we go through a testing. We wrestle with what we know and what we don't know, what we believe and what we don't believe. God's not afraid for you to go through that wrestling. Determine it. What do you really believe? What do you really know? What do you really accept? And as you persevere in that process, spiritual maturity is developed. God's purpose is for eternity. It's hard. Sometimes we can only see the temporal. What's taking place in the midst of the testing? But God sees the view from eternity and what's being developed, what's being grown, what's being developed for eternity. We are tested to develop humility. We're testing for knowing what's in our heart. Well, let's move on to the third point this morning. Yes, trials will come to us all. Yes, trials will mature our faith. And yet James says we are to consider this process as joy. Consider this process as joy. Type that in the chat if you're online. And then give me an emoji for that. Consider the process as joy. Now, now, now bear with me now. Hear, hear, hear what I'm saying. I didn't say consider the trial as joy. I didn't say consider the trial joyfully. That would be ridiculous. When you go through a trial, it's painful. It hurts. You feel lonely. Sometimes you feel abandoned. You feel misunderstood. Sometimes you feel helpless. 
It's not joyful. But you consider the process as joy. And what's that process? It's that process of experiencing a trial, examining your faith, wrestling with what you believe and what you don't believe according to what's in your heart, persevering through the process, and then developing spiritual maturity. We start to see the trial in light of God's perspective. We start to see the trial in light of eternity. It's a testing of our faith. It's a purifying of what we believe and what we don't believe. It's a perseverance and a tenacity which develops depth of character and eventual spiritual maturity. Remember I said you don't get spiritually mature just by growing old in Christ. It doesn't happen. And it's that process that causes us to be joyful. Why? Because we serve a loving God who is concerned about our eternity. He's concerned about who we are. He knows every aspect of every cell of our body. He desires to bring to us hope in a hopeless situation. He desires to bring to us light when we are in darkness. He desires to bring to us life when we are facing death. That is the God who loves us and that is the God who we serve. One other analogy, if I might. We live in western New York. You know, there's, we get a bad rap. I, there's a lot of good things about western New York. And you know, one of the things that I like about western New York, it's the variety of trees that we have here in western New York. And before the ash borer struck and really wiped out thousands of ashes, there were a wonderful variety of deciduous trees that would change color and evergreen trees across our region. But also in western New York, we live with some pretty significant windstorms. Now here's a question that I don't want you to answer out loud, but just in your minds I'd like you to think. Have you ever noticed in a windstorm, what are the first trees to blow over in a windstorm? Not always very frequently. Very frequently, the first trees to blow in over in a windstorm are actually the pine trees. See, the pine trees have a root system that is very extensive, but not very deep. So when the wind blows, the pines go over. But you see, then you have some of the trees, like the deciduous trees, like the, the oak or the maple, whose roots go down deep into the soil and into the earth. And you know why the roots of the oak go down so deep? It's because of drought, lack of water, that drive the roots down deep into the soil, seeking water and nutrients. See, it's actually the drought which drives the roots down deep. Are you getting my analogy? That's what trials do. They drive our roots down deep into what we know, as we determine what we know and what we believe versus what we don't. Our roots go down deep. So when the storms of life next hit, we're anchored. And it doesn't blow us over. Well, let me, let me finish the story that I started at the, at the beginning of my message. I was sharing with you about John and Elizabeth Babalola and their son Wally. Wonderful people. Unfortunately, Elizabeth, after she travels from Nigeria with her son Wally to Buffalo, she receives this 
diagnosis of life-threatening cancer. 34 years of age. She's alone in America with her four-year-old son and her only adult family member being her husband, who's working countless hours as a surgery resident at the University of Buffalo. We developed a friendship with John and with Elizabeth. We developed a process whereby at 6.30 in the morning, John would bring Elizabeth and Wally to our home. Daryl would help Elizabeth in and, and put her on our couch because she was receiving chemotherapy. Daryl would then care for Elizabeth and even learn to cook some Nigerian food to care for Elizabeth. And Wally, at four years of age, would care for my son Ben, who was about 10 at the time, who Daryl was homeschooling. So Ben would look after Wally, and Daryl would care for Elizabeth. John could then go to his residency and help save lives with the University of Buffalo, and I would go on to my work as a family doc at Kemmerer Mercy Hospital. And then we would repeat that day after day, after day, after week, and after month. And in that period of time, something remarkable happened. We saw this spiritual growth and development within Elizabeth and John, and even Wally, which was something that was hard for us to understand. As they were going through this difficulty in life, their, their, their roots started to drive down deep. And what they believed started to become evident. And it was so powerful that as Daryl and I reflect on it, there were times where we almost felt that when John and Elizabeth and Wally were in our home, we were experiencing the presence of God. Life. Maturity. Growth. In the face of terminal illness. I don't understand it, but that's what we saw. And then it happened. Elizabeth's body couldn't take it any longer. The cancer was too extensive. And she died. And she entered eternity with God. And she left behind her four-year-old son, Wally, and her husband, John, as a surgery resident at the University of Buffalo. And yet my memories... And yet my memories of Elizabeth and John and of Wally are memories of spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. They're memories of seeing something happen in a person's life which would be defined as being miraculous. You see, what was happening was that I was first seeing things from the temporal. And then I started to see things from the eternal. And as I transitioned my thoughts from the temporal to the eternal, I could see what God was doing. And you see that spiritual maturity is eternal. You know why it's eternal? Because that was 25 years ago. And that's still affecting me today. And it still affects Daryl today. And you know what? It's affecting you today too. The story of John and Elizabeth Babylola that took place 25 years ago is affecting you. And it's prompting your heart by God's spirit to drive in deep. To be concerned about that which is eternal. See, trials are real. 
They're painful. They're hurtful. They're lonely. But they're temporary. Character, tenacity, perseverance, spiritual maturity. That's eternal. That's eternal. Let me close. I don't want to keep you too long. Brief little, few little thoughts as we close. My wife and I have three wonderful children. Scott already alluded to it. Elizabeth, Rachel, and Benjamin. And at the time when we were having kids, <laughs> I always find that's funny. Nowadays, the kids say, we're pregnant. When Daryl was pregnant, she was pregnant. Nowadays, we're pregnant. I still don't get how the guy gets pregnant, but I'll, I'll set that aside. I get it. I'm a different generation. But when Daryl was pregnant with our three children, it was her desire to go through natural childbirth. That was her desire. And so she did for all three of the kids. And so it's not unusual that a, a gal who's pregnant, maybe for the first time, might come to Daryl and say, hey, Daryl, what was it like? Talk to me about your experience. And Daryl will say something like this. It's painful. But you know, there's that moment where they put the baby in your arms. And the pain goes away. And the joy that you experience as you hold that child in the arms causes you to forget all that pain. See, the pain is real, but it's temporary. But the joy is eternal. Makes me think of the cross, the crucifixion of Christ upon the cross. The crucifixion and the pain that he suffered was followed by the celebration of the resurrection. And for us as Christians, even our death is followed by our eternal life. You see, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lesson here. The temporal, it's important, and we don't deny it. But we focus on the eternal. Why? Because when we face trials, we remember that trials come to us all. We remember that trials mature our faith. And we are to consider the process as joy. Let's pray together. Lord, you know our hearts. And you see our hearts. <laughs> we think we can hide things from you, Lord, but, but it's just not true. You know us better than we know ourselves. And you see the circumstances and situations which we presently find ourselves in. Some not of our own making. The difficulties, the pain, the broken relationship, the trial that we are experiencing. We pray that you would give us eyes to see beyond our present understanding. We pray that your spirit, your pneuma, would dwell with us in the midst of our trial that we would not be alone, but that we would know your presence and we would move from the temporal 
to the eternal as we seek to serve you, to love you, and to obey you. And we rest it all in your hands, knowing that you are a loving God who hold us and who support us with the mighty arms of a creator of the universe and with the gentle touch of a savior. We commit our way to you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.